Amen. Well, Kevin, thank you very much, and Ben, thank you for leading us in worship. Uh, I am Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Good to see all of you all here this morning, and welcome in online, those who are joining us online. Good to see you guys as well. I want to thank Kevin as well for speaking last Sunday. Again, thank you, Kevin, for, for that. Well, I was, at the, uh, I was in a meeting this week, and toward the end of a meeting, a friend of mine, um, I'll, I'll call her, her Kim for now, but um, Kim uh, works at our local hospital here, and she told a story about her dad who had to go to the hospital and um, when he went to the hospital, I don't know if any of you have been to the hospital recently, just for fun, you know, something, something for you to do on a Friday night, and actually not free at all, but anyway, he went to the hospital, and um, it turned out that he needed to stay for several days, and things didn't go well uh, in terms of his um, accommodations there in the hospital. He was admitted, uh, and then taken to a a place that they kind of turned into a room for him, but it wasn't really a room room, if you know what I'm saying. And if you've been to the hospital recently, I have, if you've <laughs> been to see someone in the hospital recently, you know that they are short-staffed and they're doing the best they can with what they have. Not a critique of the hospital, just the reality that her dad found himself in a situation where he was kind of in between rooms and kind of stuck for several days. At some point then, Kim, my friend, says, listen, enough is enough, and she goes to the hospital, this may have been after two or three days, and says, and, and flashes her badge, because she works at the hospital, okay, she works for the hospital, but it's so big, they don't know everybody who works there, and here's what she says to the charge nurse, I report to the CEO, can you get my dad a room, well, what do you think happened? <laughs> that day, within a few hours, all of a sudden, dad has moved from what was a storage closet, into his own room, amazingly enough. Isn't that amazing? And here's what Kim was frustrated with. She said, I shouldn't have to flash my badge for that to happen. Why? Because everybody, everybody should get the same level of care regardless of who they know or what power is in the room. You feel that? That's what she felt like. She's like, I shouldn't have to do that because everybody who walks into the hospital should be able to get a room and be taken care of in that way. But what she experienced and what you and I experience is the reality that value fluctuates, right? People's value fluctuates all the time. That's the world you live in and the world I live in. We've all been in the situation that Kim found herself in with her dad, and maybe for you it wasn't the hospital, maybe it was a calling a 1-800 number. You ever do that recently? You need to complain about something that's not working, a service that you're getting? You're getting transferred and transferred and transferred. But you know, if you had the CEO's cell phone number, like this thing would be resolved within minutes. And wouldn't it be great if that could happen? You know, you know that is true for whether it's in school or whether it's in business. Value fluctuates. How we see one another fluctuates. And it impacts how we function together as people. That whether you're more beautiful, whether you're stronger and faster, you're on the team, you're off the team, you can perform, you can't perform, it changes the way that we value people. Whether we like it or not, that has been our experience. But not all value is created equal. That there's what I'm going to call for this morning internal value and external value. Internal value happens this way. When a new baby is born, we've had a couple of new babies born in the life of this church recently. And if you can remember that time, if you're a parent or you know, if you're a child, if you remember that moment, that's amazing. When you're first born and you look into the eyes of your child, there's an, in, an intrinsic or internal value to that child. They have done, in the world that we live in, they have done nothing yet to benefit you except be there 
they're, they're present. You look into their eyes and you're like, this is an amazing little person. And you keep doing that for the next 15, 18, 30 years of their life, right? A few honest laughs on that one. But you look into that child, they haven't done anything for you yet necessarily of value, but you know that like intrinsically, internally, this is a person of value. That just happens all the time. This is why you hear of strangers jumping into ponds to save other people's children, because you know internally there's a value to humanity. But there's also external value. External value happens when you're a better employee than the one next to you, when you're a better singer than the person next to you, when you're a better athlete than the other person on the bench. You get played more. You get the, the part in the musical that other people don't get. You get paid more, depending upon what you can produce. Externally, you produce sometimes things of greater perceived value than other things, and that's also the way the world works, isn't it? And I'm not against that necessarily, but I am against us not being aware that these two tracks run in, in tandem with how we see one another. And that if we are not aware of them, we can begin to value people going from this track to this track, sometimes staying over here, sometimes coming back here. And this morning, my interest primarily is in the spiritual realm because both of these tracks happen spiritually. We can value people internally for who they really are, but we can also value people externally for what they actually do for us. The more abilities they have to do this or to do that, the more consistent they are with how they pray or serve or show up. The more they seem to text or care or call, the greater value they seem to have. And here's the struggle with value. And I want to put this up and then talk about this this morning from the scriptures. That internal value unifies while external value divides. Internal value. When I see you for who you are and the value in your humanity that I believe is God-impressed value. That unifies us. All of a sudden, I see me in you. There is no distinction now between me and you because you are simply valuable because of what God has impressed in your heart and soul. But external value, when I see you as separate from me, you can't do the things that I do and I can't do the things that you do. You're not as strong as, as fast as, as beautiful as, as eloquent as, as uh, intelligent in this area as. I begin to separate from you. I don't walk in your circles. I don't hang with your friend group. I'm not able to connect with you because there are things that are different about us, and I apply an external value. And those things begin, and you know this is true in our world, to separate us, to divide us. You're not as valuable because you don't share the same views of how the world works. An internal value tends to unify, and external value tends to divide. It's just the way that things work. The Apostle Paul knew this. Paul was an early follower of Jesus, and he wrote about this very issue to, a, to the early church, trying to figure out how they get themselves going. Because this is a problem, not just in our world in general, but also spiritually speaking for the body of Christ and for the way that the world engages the church. Because of all places in the world, where is the one place that people of all stripes, regardless of their faith, where is the one place in the world where people should be able to find value and unity, peace and strength? It should be, in my estimation, in the church. The church that welcomes people of all stripes, with all power, of all the haves and have-nots, all the people who have done this or haven't done that, of all the people in the world, regardless of where they have come from, of, of all the organizations and places, the church is that one place that should look 
internally and say, you are a God-impressed human being. You have value here. But friends, I don't know if your experience is like mine. I've had too much external value that has divided me from maybe some of you and from some of my peers and friends in the past. And this is the struggle that I have, and it may or may not be a struggle you have, but it is a struggle of the early church to balance the internal value that God brings to us with the external reality that we tend to judge one another on what we can and cannot do, even in the area of our spiritual lives. So I want to take you to a passage of Scripture. We're in the, the letter to the church in Galatia, a, church, a letter called Galatians. It's a little book in your Bible. I want to invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 3 this morning. This is where we're going to be for a few minutes. If you don't have a Bible with you, again, not a problem. There's one in the, the chairs near you. But Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 23, is where we're going to be this morning. And we're going we're gonna to go through into the beginning of chapter 4 this morning, actually. Uh, and you're going to see in this passage some things that Paul says are true about the past, the present, and the future, all related to our value internally and externally. And so let's begin in verse 23 as Paul kind of reviews the past. He's speaking to this early church. He says to them, before the coming of this faith in time past, before the coming of this faith, meaning Christ, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. I'm going to pause it right there and talk about these verses. This, I believe, Paul is setting up in the past tense and uses a great metaphor of being in prison. What he's saying is, to, to people who are early believers in Jesus, he said, you, imagine yourself, you used to be in prison. This is where you were. The law locked you up. The only way for you to be justified and prove that you can get out of prison is to fulfill the sentence of your law. Now, here's what you know about the law. The law is a terrible master. It can make you feel good if you do all the right things, but you know that unless you do all the right things all the time for the rest of your life, even inside of your own mind and heart, you will never be free from the mastery of the law. And so Paul pictures the law as something that keeps you in prison. Sure, you can go the speed limit for a couple of weeks. Sure, you can keep your diet for a little while, but don't you dare think about that piece of cake because as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, right? Like you are mastered by this thing that you can never get out of, and so the law keeps you in a prison, and it keeps you confined. And he gives us this picture that it's as if Christ came walking down the halls of that, that prison and said, you know what, here's the deal. I have the key to get you out. And the key to get you out of your prison cell is for you to trust me. Believe. I have justified you or made you right. And so he said, before the coming of this faith, before Christ came walking down the hall with the key to get you out of your cell, you were locked up. But the key has come. Christ has come and has given you the key. And when you believe in him, you receive that key, if you will, and you can unlock that and you are his word justified then the guardian the one who is standing out here making sure you stay in the cell has to look at that and say well you're right you're you're justified your sentence has been met you are 
free to go. In the past, we, he says, were locked up. And so he begins by bringing us back to our internal shared value. All of us, friends, regardless of where we are now or have been, all of us who have believed in Christ, all of us were locked up in this place. He brings us right back. This is where we were. This is our value. There is a result that comes from that for the church. He's saying, early church, you all were locked up. So forget your distinctions for a minute. Forget what separates you for a minute. All of us were in the same cell. So, and then he moves into the present in the next verse, verse 26. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And then he makes this statement in verse 28. Which if you know your Bible, you have heard before, and if you haven't encountered this verse, that is not a problem at all. But this is a, a powerful and profound statement. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Think for a minute about the power of verse 28. What did that world rest on? What were the, the underpinnings of that world in which he was living? Religion or morality? Jew or Gentile? Power, slave or free? Gender, male or female? This is a world in which the argument that Paul is dealing with in Galatians is people who were Jewish were saying to the new Gentiles who were coming to faith, you're not doing it right. You need to honor the, the old ways of doing it. You need to jump through some certain hoops to make sure that you're following the way of Yahweh, the way that we have been raised. There's a power structure in place. Some commentators will argue for this and get this, and this is going to sound so weird, but up to 75% of the people who lived in this Greco-Roman world at the time were actually in slavery. Believe that? So think about that. We're talking about a massive population, and Paul's looking out there and saying, hey, by the way, there's no slave nor free, to which the people would be like, you're, you're kidding me, right? Like the vast majority of people that I know either are slaves or have a slave, and you're telling me there's no slave nor free, right? But you just said there's no Jew or Gentile. Our world doesn't work that way, Paul. There's clean and unclean. This is why we argue with people. It's kind of a fun you know, thing to do on you know, Thanksgiving, get together and argue about who's Jew and Gentile, you know, what's clean and unclean. I mean, what are you saying? And then he says there's no male nor free, or excuse me, male nor female. There's no male nor female. Now that one, that one's even worse, right? Like, are you, you kidding? Like, this is a patriarchal world in which he's writing in, right? I mean, women don't have the rights at this time that men do, not even... Not even in the conversation. Women not only don't have a right to vote, as if that was happening at this point, but don't even have a legal standing in the eyes of the law. To which Paul makes these statements, and he's attacking each of these underpinnings of their current society, the things that, that structured their religion and their, their morality, the things that structured their power and the things that structured their gender and social relations. He says, these things, friends, that you look at each other at, you say, oh, well, she's a female. Who could ever think that her opinion would matter? Oh, he's a male. He's just thinking this way. Oh, well, they're a Gentile. There's a reason why they do that. Oh, well, he's a slave. Well, if only he would work a little harder and earn his freedom. Those things that you're so quick to judge on, friends, he said, now, there's no longer slave nor free. 
There's no longer Jew nor Gentile. There's no longer male or female. This is a powerful and controversial statement that Paul makes. And here's what I would think, here's what I think Paul is talking to. Because we were all in prison, we all came out of prison by faith through Christ alone. We didn't come out of prison because of our works. We came out because of what Christ did. Now as we step into the space in the presence, so therefore, he says, so therefore, he says, I want you to see the oneness that you have in Christ. The oneness that you have in Christ. You're all children of God through faith. And I would argue this, that as Paul is engaging in the early church, that in the early church, Paul argues against placing external value on things like morality and power and gender. Think about that in our world for a minute. Can you imagine our world if we didn't place external value on morality and power and gender? Can you imagine how that might work in the church? On morality, things like morality, Jew or Gentile. Friends, I, I have judged and been judged. I have judged those who have slept with other people before marriage. I have judged those who have had certain amounts of alcohol in their system at certain periods of time. I have judged things that people have smoked, things that people have watched, things that they listen to. I have judged their habits and routines, and I don't know if you have as well or if you've been the recipient of said judgment. I have judged morality. And I've separated, I haven't done it in writing, but I've separated myself morally from people who I feel like aren't quite at the level that I might want to be at. And maybe you have too. And I've heard parents who do this as well with their children making statements to me along the way of <laughs> one of the classic ones to me is as we were engaging some people in our community, they said this to me very directly and with passion. I don't want those people at our church because I don't want their kids dating our daughters. Well, that's really, I think that's exactly what Jesus would say, right? But it was honest, and I appreciated the honesty of it. And it's rare that we're so honest with the dark parts of our heart, right? We just go over it real quick. Like, we don't say those things that are dark and live in us. We just act out of them, and nobody challenges us. But here Paul is saying, listen, there's a moral structure in which Jews and Gentiles would absolutely judge one another. The Gentiles are sitting there judging the Jews who are elite and snobs. And the Jews are sitting there judging the Gentiles who are loose and immoral. And Paul is saying, both of you, you've got some issues. Because in the kingdom of God now in the present, you all were in prison. If that's where you started, you've been freed from that. Not because you've worked your way out of it morally, but because Christ came down the hall, gave you the key of death on the cross for you. And then he picks on power. Imagine that. He's picking on power. He's saying there's no longer slave nor free. I mean, listen, you know this as well as I do. There are haves and have-nots in our world, aren't there? And generally, the haves tend to hang together, and the have-nots generally tend to hang together. It is unusual for people living in poverty to go on vacations, be in Instagram pictures and Facebook pictures with those who own businesses on a regular basis. Those who are leaders of governments rarely hang with those who are in their middle and lower classes and are pictured in photo shoots with them, rarely, rarely. There are haves and there are have-nots in our world all the time, are there not? And I'm not saying that you shouldn't own a business. I'm not saying that you shouldn't help run a country. 
But I am saying that Paul picks on this for a minute and he says, friends, as you judge one another externally and operate within a power system in which certain people have power and some do not, be aware that in the Christian world, and this is the uniqueness of the church, haves sit next to have-nots. And the have-nots can judge the haves if they want to. They can judge the haves if they want to because it goes that way, doesn't it? The have-nots can judge the haves and say, oh, again, look at all their money and, you know, look at what they do. Certainly they must be cheating something and, again, they're so elite and they're free from us and they're just different and I'm so glad that I'm, I can relate to people and I'm personable and all that. And the haves can judge the have-nots, can't you? I mean, that, if only they would work harder, if only they would show up, if only they wouldn't be this way, if their history were different, whatever, but they're just not working hard enough and, hey, there's an open door, if only they would. And he picks on both of us. He says, friends, there's no longer slave nor free. There's the haves and the have-nots. The power in the room is challenged in the early church. So you're going to sit next to each other in church. You're going to worship together now. You're going to pray together. You're going to find a space where together now all of a sudden the power dynamic has changed. Why? Because of your past, because of your internal value, not external value. And then gender. Let's skip over that, can we? Male nor female, he says. That clearly is the most controversial. Maybe not the most least offensive, but it, or most offensive. This is a challenging one, isn't it? Paul makes that statement, there's no longer male nor female. What does that mean in the life of the church, right? I think it's important not to make this verse say more than it says or less than it says. I don't want to make it say more, meaning Paul isn't making a case here, I believe, for all gender distinctions to be gone. I think that's too far. That, that isn't what he writes in the New Testament. I can't affirm that biblically. I don't think he's saying there's now no difference between being a male and a female. We should just wipe it all out. Be like one gender with no distinctions. That's not what I think he's saying. But he is saying something. And similar to how the power and morality play in, also, we tend to judge each other based on our genders, don't we? And again, not trying to offend anybody. You can react to this. Maybe not right now. That would help me. Later on, it's fine. Um, but listen, don't, don't we, uh, uh, on both the male and the female side, tend to look at each other and at times judge and value one another on the basis of gender? For example, men, um, is it not most times where men will look down on women who, who are physically weaker or incapable of competing in some athletic events, for example, the same way that, that men are? In fact, if you're a guy... You don't ever want to lose to a girl, right? Remember this one time I was playing um, ping pong with someone, and they're an adult female. This was just a few years ago. She was a good ping pong player, and, and she, she, she said to me, are you okay if we play? Because I'm pretty good, and I, don't, and I like to be competitive, and if I beat you, I don't want that to be like a problem for you. To which I'm like, bring it on, lady. No, I didn't say that. I appreciated it because she had experienced as a female the disruption of the power dynamic and the discomfort she felt in the room from beating a male in ping pong. The most important thing in the world, right? But she had to verbalize that. And as the game went on and we went back and forth, I began as a male to feel some of that. And men, you know what I'm talking about, that like man card will be lost if you lose to a girl, right? 
And isn't that what we hear and isn't that reinforced? And all of a sudden, Paul steps into that space to say, men, as you judge the women around you, what is their value? What is their value? What is your value in comparison? What I've learned that women have had to deal with, and I'm still learning this space, ladies, the preponderance of power in our churches, in most of our governments, and in many of our businesses have been located within male leaders. Not all of it, but much of it. Women have had to figure out ways to work in a room that men simply don't. Women have to think about how they dress in ways that men simply don't because it can disrupt the power dynamic in the room if they're not careful. They can get spoken over in a board meeting because they're not quick enough or not perceived to be as strong. They hold back emotion when it could help in a decision-making process because it's perceived to be weak and not a part of the process because men will look down on that. Ladies, is it not also common to look down on a man after love has been spurned? Aren't all men jerks after all? Don't all men only want sex? Isn't that what all men are for, about? Aren't all men kind of pigs in that way? And aren't all men, you know, I've heard this too, maybe you've heard this too, if only these guys just were, we'll play along with these guys. They don't get the fine details, they don't get the nuance, they're not as intelligent. We can't tell them that necessarily, but we'll kind of cater them and we'll, we'll help them out. But they don't need to know it, that's fine, just let them know, think they're in charge, that's fine. But listen, the world functions because of women's nuances and abilities and emotion. And men and women, don't we equally look at each other at times and say, oh, you're a man, oh, oh, female, oh. To which Paul challenges all of this again and says, both genders, you're going to be working together in the church, friends. You're you're coming together and your value isn't because you're stronger or you have a, a greater emotional insight that can indeed lead. Well, this isn't where you find your value. In fact, the judgment on both sides of this can lead to incredible division because external division, external value divides. But he's saying there's no longer male nor free in this sense. Not that we're getting rid of distinctions, not that we shouldn't have different roles. I think there is room for that for sure. There's beauty to that. But what Paul is painting a picture of is a, a church, an early new version of a community that looks around at morality and power and even gender just as examples. It says, in the church, we are one, not because we're all the same, but because we're all in prison. Christ came down the hall. He didn't care if you were male or female. He didn't care if you owned a business or ran a country. He didn't care if you kept your sexual ethics pure or didn't. He came down the hall for you, and he let you out of prison. Therefore, the internal value that we all have that we all, regardless of where we've been, have been justified by Christ. Therefore, church, let the church be the expression of that in the world. Can you imagine that? That all the haves and have-nots are gathered in one place, that all the male and female are gathering in one place, that all the moral and immoral people are gathering in one place and together are proclaiming there is a Savior who unites, a Savior who heals, and a Savior who redeems. That is a powerful picture. And that's where Paul takes us to the picture of the future. He goes on into chapter 4 and talks about what it means to grow up in this faith, to look forward to what will be, which is also incredibly unifying. 
Let's look at a couple of those verses as we wrap it up here this morning. Into chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. He says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, he says, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. This is this picture of a future. A future where our past of being in prison and our present of valuing each other internally leads to a, a place where we are an heir to the kingdom of God. That all that God offers to us in the kingdom becomes yours and mine. Not more mine than yours because I'm male and you're female. Not more mine than yours because I have and you have not. Nor more mine than yours because I've been pure, I've been moral, and you've been immoral and impure. Not more mine, but we together are heirs. This is an incredible picture that by the, on the basis of faith alone, through Christ alone, we have moved from being a slave in prison to a child to an heir. It's an incredible picture. And it leads me to two questions and a little bit of review. As I think about what Paul is saying in this, this space, two questions for you that I'd love for, it for you to process. The first question is this. As you think about value, when I ask you this question, here it comes. There it is. Worth waiting for. What value do I see in me? What value do I see in me? And here's why I ask that question. Because if you're going to engage this world, it starts with how you see yourself. I realize as I process this content and what Paul is writing about, that I judge not just you externally, but I judge me externally. I judge my morality, my power, even my gender. How do I carry out my role as a male with the power that I have, with my moral framework and compass? And I can look at myself and create my value based on my consistent ability to perform well in this world as I see that I should. But what Paul is saying is when I look in the mirror, what I should see with great regularity is that there's internal value that God, through Christ, has given to me. He's walked down the hall for me, given me the key to free me from the law, and brought me into adoption as sonship, that I may be an heir to the kingdom of God, all because of what? Faith in Christ alone. What value do I see in me as I look in the mirror? Friends, what value do you see in you? How much more beautiful do you need to be to find that value? How much smarter do you think you're going to need to get to look back in the mirror and be okay with yourself? What do you think you're going to need to accomplish to be able to be satisfied when the eyes looking back in the mirror at you tell you of all the things that you still have yet to do? When you look into the mirror, friends, where is your value? Because for the Christian, it is this God-impressed value that he has made you and even better, he has redeemed you. What value do I see in me? And this is where Paul challenged the early church and said, friends, before you start dividing over all that you find valuable or invaluable with one another, remind yourself of where you have come from. And the second question is like this, except it's a little different. What value not just do I see in me, but what value do I see in we? And I know that's wrong, but it's also kind of right. 
What value do I see in we? In other words, who am I most quick to judge, right? Who am I most quick to judge? Who's going to think differently philosophically about this world? I don't care if that's politics. I don't care if that's ideology about how power works or business works or school works or futures or relationships. But what value do I see in we? When I look around the room, and here's my challenge, I guess. For many of us, I don't know if this is your experience, it is mine. Most of my relationships do not challenge me in this area. In other words, you can listen to this message this morning and do, get this, this is going to be so fun, and do absolutely nothing about it. Zero. Let me ask you, how many people are going to challenge you to ask questions like this going forward? If you do nothing about this, who's going to say, hey, I think something's wrong in your life? The answer is nobody. nobody. No one's going to challenge you because we all live in this world. And so the challenge is the reality that, friends, we can go on with our subtle judgments and our jabs and our comments and our ideas and our thinking. We can go on with it. But what's at stake for me, I think, is what in the world is the hope that we hold out to this world? Can you imagine holding out a hope to the world to say there is a community in which we value one another internally? for what God has done for us. We don't care about your past moral background. We don't care if you work hard enough and show up to work every day. We don't care if you're male nor female. We don't care where you voted, what kind of work you have or don't have. What we care about is the internal value that God has impressed on you and that Christ walked down the hall to invite you out of the law prison that you were in. Because something I think we can all agree on is this, that again, internal value unifies, but external value divides. And what I also think is true is that if your dad was going to the hospital, you would want him to have a room, right? Even if you don't work at the hospital and can show your badge, you would know it's just the right thing that everybody has access to that kind of care, right? And I would argue the same for the church, that everybody should have access to the equal seat at the table in the church, in our community, regardless of male nor female, regardless of left or right or up or down, or have or have not, or past moral or future moral decisions that we can be a people and the early church can be people set on the internal value of Christ in us that unifies, not the external value that so easily divides. So question for you again, what do you see in me? What do you see in we? Will you pray with me? Our good God and heavenly Father, I thank you for the time to be here this morning to step back in time hundreds of years to a time when Paul was trying to set this early church on a trajectory that would hold it to be a people of faith who could with regularity over the generations over and over and over again reflect in their community life that they are people who are redeemed by the grace of Christ not that we are marked externally by all that we can do 
and all that we can perform and all the hoops that we can jump through. And Father, I pray that you would keep us as a church from adding external value to what you have already placed inside each one of us. That you would remind us that it is by faith through Christ, by faith in Christ, that as a community we find our value. And so I pray that you would forgive us where our judgment of people comes quick. I pray that you would help us to be honest with the dark parts of ourselves that quickly read social media posts, that, that quickly engage with people who are different than us or disengage and quickly judge on the basis of external value and begin to divide ourselves from other people. I pray that you'd reopen that part of us that we can see again that we are all in prison and on our own did nothing to get out. So, Father, I thank you for the gift of the cross of Christ. I thank you for the gift of the redeeming and unifying work of Christ. And help us, by your Spirit, to have courage to see what we need to see. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.